0: My name is Jolene Jackson and I'm with Moms for America. Welcome to our 5,000 Year Leap Seminar, a 12-week seminar where we will meet every Thursday evening, 8.30 Central Standard Time. We're so delighted to have you. I am with Moms for America where we believe that liberty begins at home. When mothers understand the stories and miracles of America, when she reveres the founding fathers and the Constitution, so will her children. On these evening classes, I recruit my husband, Al, to teach with me. And so we call ourselves Families of America. We are delighted to be with you. Al and I have been married almost 30 years. We have five beautiful children. You will be hearing a little bit about the family. Al, do you want to show them what our family looks like? We have five children, ages 27 on down to 14. Most of the kids are out of the home now but they give us really great material when they come to us with various ideas and stories. So through the the next 12 weeks, you'll be hearing a little bit about the family there. Kayla married five years ago to her wonderful Jake. And then uh, this other picture, this was just a few uh, weeks ago in Central Park in New York City. So about 12 years ago, we were living right here in Hood River, Oregon, and our kids were, I think the oldest was in eighth grade, Kaylin, and then we had a little toddler. And we mamas were worried about our, what our children were being taught in this kind of small progressive town on the Columbia River. And one of the mothers saw a show called Glenn Beck, and he held up the book the 5,000-year leap. And he said, mothers, you need to begin to study these principles. And you need to gather together and learn them. And they go home and teach them to your children. And so that's what about six to eight women did in this town. We began to meet once a month and to study these principles. And inevitably, we went home and began to teach our children these principles of freedom, these stories of America. For years, we had had a little family, devotion, family devotional in our home where we would study the Bible, and we'd sing a little gospel song, and then we'd kneel in prayer, and then we'd get the kids off for school. And we did this because I saw my mom do this in my home when I was growing up. So as I began to learn the stories and miracles of America, the principles of liberty and freedom, I began to weave them into our family devotional. And at first, I think Al thought I was uh, like a right wing radical nut, but his heart began to be pricked and he understood that what I was teaching was good. And he too began to teach these concepts and ideas right along with me and attend Healing of America seminars that we now present at Moms for America. And I will talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. In fact, You know, learning these principles of liberty and freedom were the impetus for him. Al wanted to show us the next slide of him eventually running for the state Senate in Utah, and he won. And I've heard Al say it was those morning devotionals and learning these principles of liberty and freedom that pricked his heart. And he was able to serve in the state Senate for a time. I know that you would not be here today if you were not concerned about the direction of our country and worried about the future of your children and your grandchildren. Young people today don't really know the true history of America. And it would seem as if they don't love America. If we are going to raise up this next generation of patriots, if we're going to preserve and perpetuate what our founding fathers gave us, we need to be burst. In these ideas and these concepts, so that uh, not only we know, but that we can teach our rising generations so that they can continue them on. You know, we can't teach something that we don't know ourselves. And that's why it's I really commend you for, for showing up tonight and being committed to taking this 12-week class. We're going to study the 28 principles of liberty that our founding fathers said must be understood and perpetuated by all of those that desire peace, prosperity, and freedom. I just want you to know these 28 principles are going to become like your best friends. And I, we've, on the screen here, we have a copy of the bookmark that you can order these from the nccs.net, stands for the National Center for Constitutional Studies. I believe you can get 100 of these little bookmarks for five bucks. I would so recommend... Um, Purchasing these and then putting these bookmarks in all your books, in your purses, in your cars, on the refre- on your refrigerator, wherever, uh, you know, you feel like they need to be scattered about and begin to take one principle at a time and begin to memorize them and then review the ones that you memorize each day. The key to retaining what you memorize is to consistently review them. So I walk the dog every day and I try and review these 28 principles. So they stay locked in my mind. So when you're having a conversation with a family member or a neighbor or, you know, a school teacher, and, uh, you know, instead of using emotionalism to talk about how bad things are and and why you're so uh, distressed about this or that you you, uh, bring forth a principle and it completely changes the tone of the conversation. There are so many uh, lies and distortions in in the news and, and out and about in the world. So when you speak on principle, when you use these principles, you will always speak with a greater position of strength because principles are universal and they transcend party and politics. These principles are proven. And they have worked. And so it will elevate, it will take the conversation to a new level. Instead of spewing forth emotionalism, you, you speak on principle. And so when I say they'll become your best friend, you just try it out and you will know what I mean. They will be there for you in your hour of need when you need to say something subst- substantial uh, and and and. and elevate or alter the course of a conversation that might be going south. Al, can we see the next slide? So this is the book, The 5,000-Year Leap. You can use that. Or what I would really recommend is getting the student manual here on the screen. And you can order that at KimberCurriculum.com. I believe it's $24.99. And it's fill in the blanks. Now, they say you learn best when you have a multi-sensory experience, when you have to listen Right hear, see. And so the, the keys to all the answers are in the back of the student manual. It's also an excellent way to set yourself up to possibly, hopefully, teach these classes yourself in a cottage meeting setting. A cottage meeting is simply a discussion group of people coming together to learn. It's like a Bible study, but we're studying principles of liberty. So imagine if you uh, were going to teach this 5,000-year leap in your home to a group of five or 10 people, you could just go through and fill in the blanks together. And after every section, you could stop and have a discussion. Okay, what does this mean for us? How are we seeing this in our community or schools, in our homes, or in our nation? And you would just share experiences and teach one another. And that's exactly what... You know, I did when I started having cottage meetings. I wasn't a constitutional scholar, I wasn't a historian, but you know, we we did these fill in the blanks. We we uh, you know we did it together, and then we would stop and we would discuss current events and how we're seeing it played out, and how these principles worked back then, and how they might work um, today. And so I would recommend you getting that student edition of the book. Now, before we get started in our class today, I just want to go over uh, and tell you a little bit about the author of The 5,000-Year Leap. His name is uh, Cleon Skousen, and he was really a renowned teacher and lecturer for more than 60 years. He passed away in 2016, so he passed away about 16 years ago, but he studied law at George... George Washington University here in Washington, DC, which by the way, this is where Alan and I reside. We live just in, in a suburb of Washington, DC in Chevy Chase, Maryland. So Cleon Skousen would go on to have a career in the FBI for a time, 16 years. He worked closely with J. Edgar Hoover from 1935 to 1951. He was a chief of police. He was a, a professor of religion. He started the National Center for Constitutional Studies, which would go on to become really a leading organization that would teach students and legislators seminars on the founding uh, of our nation, our founding fathers, the U.S. Constitution. Now let's show some of the books that he has um, written. So he, he wrote the 5,000 or the Healing of America seminars. And those seminars are available on our momsforamerica.us website. It's a 16-week course. I teach them to moms during the day, and Al and I do an evening class. And, you know, wouldn't you say that Healing of America seminar is what really laid the bedrock foundation of your history and the Constitution? It absolutely covers it all. Yeah. What went wrong and how we can be about the healing of the constitution of our homes, of our communities, our schools, this nation and our economy even. So I would, I would really recommend going and watching those 16 week classes. We, we do live classes uh, from time to time. We just finished up with a live class, but they're all on our website there. So he also um, has written, uh, I think a must have book in everyone's I Love America library. It's called The Making of America, and it is a clause by clause explanation of every line in the constitution and what our founding fathers intended. We actually studied this book in a cottage meeting that I had with about 10 women, and it took us two years to go through this book. We have a student edition that you can find at kimbercurriculum.com, but it took us two years meeting every week for two hours to go through this Making of America book, but let me tell you, those women still meet every week for two hours and it, it changed the way they activate the community in the way they teach their children and their grandchildren. So God really does reward your efforts if, if, um, if you study like that in these types of materials. Cleon skelsen of course, also wrote, let's see the next slide, I believe this 5,000-year leap that we are going to be studying now for the next 12 weeks. You know, this 5,000-year leap was the book that me and those mamas in Oregon began to study. This was our first book, really, on freedom and liberty that I read that I then began to take home to my children and teach. It was transformative to me as a mother, transformed really our marriage because we began to study these principles together. Mm -hmm. And it led us down a path that, you know, now we teach and speak all around the country on teaching principles of liberty and freedom, primarily in the home and in your
1: communities. I think this is a book. Anyone who has an interest in running for office or anyone who is in office, we make it a priority to get them a copy of this book. It's almost like scripture. It's something that you you go back and you refer to over and over and over again. And if a member of Congress or a legislator in the state actually took this book seriously, they would always vote the right way.
0: So Cleon Scowsing, the author of this book, would go on to write over 40 books and pamphlets. He's been a friend of popes and presidents of the United States. There's a room named after him in the Ronald Reagan Library in California. He was a beloved teacher and speaker to millions around the world. And I think the thing that I like about his materials is they're really understandable. He breaks a complicated subject down into an understandable and interesting style. And I think that's probably what made him so beloved and a popular educator and author. So from the beginning of history uh, until the founding of America, human civilization has made relatively little progress. Those that began to come to the new world in the 1615 and 1600s, were still plowing their fields behind animals and using ox and carts for transportation and weaving their their uh, clothes on a on a what's that a hand wheel so <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you can see beginning in about 1600 1607 when the first little ships from England came and landed in Jamestown and then a few years later 1620 In Plymouth, we began to experiment with freedom. And when that happened, the human spirit was set free and creativity flourished and human ingenuity was unleashed under the principles of liberty contained uh, in the U.S. Constitution. We literally, in 200 years, the Constitution was written in 1787 And in a little under 200 years, we were putting a man on the moon. So we had literally moved, uh, taken a 5,000 year leap in history. So this is what we're gonna discuss uh, this evening in class. We're gonna discuss the intro of the 5,000 year leap and part one, the Founding Fathers monumental task in structuring the government with all the power in the people. So let's turn to that introduction and talk about colonies of civilized human beings. From the beginning of time, these colonies have emerged and disappeared on the continental fringes of the planet Earth for over 5,000 years. years. Others uh, have built cities in Asia and and South America and and even in the, the Sahara Regions, but now they're just mere skeletal debris. Snakes, rodents, and entangled vines are all, are all about all that exists from these ghostly grandeur of these ruined past civilizations. It wasn't until 1607 another attempt was made to lay the foundation for man's most modern civilization. The settlement was called. Jamestown after his royal highness James, uh, James, the first King of England, and it was to be the first permanent colony of England in North America. And, and they wanted England wanted a foothold in the hot and humid and, and kind of hostile wilderness of what we now call Virginia. Now for a time, our family lived just about seven minutes from Jamestown mm. In Virginia, along the James River, I think it was called the Powhatan River at the time, an Indian name. But um, we can't recommend enough you attending or visiting, put it on your bucket list, Jamestown. They've recreated there the Indian villages, the, the villages of those early settlers from England, the, the boats that came across the Susan Constant, Godspeed and Discovery have all been all recreated there and are launched, lodged along that James River. There's museums and visitor centers, there's movies, there's reenactors. Uh, and, and it's just a really fabulous experience to be able to go there and to feel uh, the events that transpired. Now, when you go there, you will see there was definitely shades of the primitive past, you know, as they, uh, they came in boats that were no larger than some of the ancient sea kings, and they used the same tools that were had been used for you know millennia in China and Egypt and and Persia. And uh, about nine thousand settlers over a course of several years came to George or to Jamestown, and only about a thousand of them survived. But what was so different about Jamestown was that it was its. Uh, we'll call it communal economics. Now they experimented for a time with secular communism, but uh, that didn't, that didn't work so well for them. And it, it didn't work well for the Plymouth colony that came 13 years after in the Massachusetts area. And it wasn't until everyone began to get their own property and began to own their own labor that they began to have a desire to really prosper. And that's one of the principles of Liberty principle number 14, that says life and Liberty are only secure as long as the right to property is secure. And so as they began to own their own property and own their own labor, it really did unleash their human ingenuity is this, this experiment on freedom. And so What would transpire over the course of about 100, 150 years, the descendants of these early settlers in Virginia produced some of the most foremost intellects who would go on to structure the framework for this new civilization called the United States of America. We have Thomas Jefferson. I think it's interesting that God would plant these most inspired minds along that eastern seaboard at that point in history. Thomas Jefferson, who would go on to become the author of the Declaration of Independence, is from Virginia. James Madison from Virginia would go on to become known as the father of the Constitution. Of course, George Washington, our Revolutionary War hero and first president, and George Mason, who would uh, go on to become known as the author of the Bill of Rights. All of these men were from Virginia. Virginia was the largest of the 13 colonies with a half a million inhabitants, and she would furnish four of the first five presidents of the United States. So when the, when the country was formed in 1776 and the constitution was established and written in 1787, these principles of liberty and freedom, these principles of free market took place and the spirit of freedom moved across this country. And um, we learn in the healing of America that within the first hundred years, under these principles in the Constitution, even though we are um, the United States had 6% of the world's population, we would go on to produce at that time 50% of the world's wealth. The spirit of freedom was alive. The climate of a free market economy allowed the sciences to thrive in an explosion of inventions and technical discoveries. Uh, we harnessed electricity and internal combustion engines and jet propulsions. And uh, we began, you know, to, to invent exotic space vehicles and moved into the wonders of nuclear energy. Communication re- was revolutionized first the telegraph and then the radio and the TV and woo, what we have now, the world wide web, uh, Alan and I enjoyed watching on um, HBO max, the gilded age and it's on now, I think it's 10 shows in mm-hmm. the first season and one of the episodes and it describes this time, this gilded age in America in the late 1880s. And one of the episodes um, shows uh, when electricity came to New York City in 1882 and Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Edison, Edison Mm -hmm. flipped the switch on his power station on Pearl Street. Pearl Street still exists in Manhattan, in lower Manhattan, and that was a fun episode to watch. I would recommend that series, The Gilded Age. Well, the whole earth was explored from pole to pole within 200 years. And of course, we uh, man left this earth in a rocket ship and actually walked on the moon in 1969, Neil Armstrong. From 1787 to now, the average life of the length of life has doubled, the quality of life has tremendously been enhanced. People live in homes, we eat delicious foods from around the world, Uh, textiles, communications, transportation. We all have central heating and air conditioning. We travel the world. There's millions of books that are accessible to us. We have a high literacy rate, uh, schools for everyone, surgical miracles, medical cures, entertainment at the touch of a switch and instant news 24 hours a day. What about in our next section, progress in reverse? You know, unfortunately, Every new generation of human beings sometimes feel the instinctive necessity to reinvent the psychological will. Now, oftentimes, as advances have been made throughout history, the physical sciences capitalize on the lessons of the past. But sometimes, oftentimes, the social sciences do not. In a simple generation, sometimes we continue to duplicate the same error a half a dozen times too many human beings are doing that today they're muddling their lives with with habits of decay that have done civilizations in in the past and they're muddling we're muddling our lives with these same issues drugs riots revolutions terrorism predatory wars unnatural unnatural sex practices uh, merry-go-round marriages crime neglected and brutalized children, addictions, debt-ridden prosperity, and other ingredients that have literally shattered mighty civilizations of the past. We're seeing these elements of social decay having a devastating impact on us today as well you know so interesting about six months ago al and i traveled to egypt and there we saw we went and saw you know the great Sphinx and the great pyramids of egypt and at that time it was a highly advanced civilization and you could see it on the pyramids with our hieroglyphics and you could see evidences of you know them practicing astronomy and they had paper and ink and and calendars and clocks, and you could see the way they practice medicine, you actually see someone having eye surgery and, and how they had a gynecological and and contraceptive, you know, theories, it was really fascinating to see, they had scales and abacuses and, and uh, the great structures alone, you know, to be able to mathematically, you know, design something like that. And as we went to Luxor, and, Thebes and Memphis, known as modern-day Cairo. But but as we went there, you almost thought it was the third world country. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of the buildings look like they had been bombed out in in the middle of Cairo where there's, I think, 26 million people today. We think, what in the world went wrong
1: with the Egyptians?
0: What do you think it was?
1: Idol-worshipping, lack of God, lack of freedom.
0: Yeah, they in bondage, people, they had slaves, they, they veered away from the fundamental things that bring happiness in our life. The goal of life is not really space travel or, you know, everyone having backyard swim pools or being able to fly in planes or, you know, having access to great entertainment or fast cars. What human beings are really seeking is individual happiness and human happiness thrives only under certain types of an environment. And the prerequisite for that environment is being destroyed right now. And this is why we're having problems in the world, in our country, in our communities, and even within our family. Many millions of people do not understand what is happening. They just know that they're stressed out, they're worried, and they don't have peace, and they're not necessarily happy. And we certainly saw this magnify the last few years under COVID, with all the fear and anxiety and anger that we saw. So the answer to most of the problems is really comparatively simple. We need to return back to the fundamentals. We need to get back to the basics. Now, of course, nothing in life is ever going to be perfect, but it can be so much more gratifying and a lot less dangerous if we get back to the fundamentals that provided that amazing 5,000-year leap in the first place. And that is what this book is about. Now, these 28 principles that we're going to discuss, these great ideas that changed the world, there was not hardly a single one of these ideas uh, that the founding fathers put into their formula that hadn't already been thought of by someone before. However, when the constitution was written, none of these ideas were being substantially practiced anywhere in the world. And it was only in America and our founding fathers were able to assemble these 28 great ideas. And that is what produced this dynamic success formula that would ultimately go on to be a sensational blessing to modern man. So now, of course, we have to remember that it took about 180 years from the time when, you know, the first uh, travelers from Jamestown, from England, arrived in Jamestown in 1607 to when the Constitution was written in 1787. So it took No, there were some mistakes along the way. Nevertheless, when they were finally able to put that new Charter of Freedom the Constitution into operation, George Washington was able to write just two years after the Constitution uh, was adopted. He said, the United States now enjoys a scene of prosperity and tranquility under the new government. He said, our public credit stands on that high ground, which just three years earlier, before the Constitutional Convention, it would have been considered a species of madness to have foretold. Now, remember during the Constitutional Convention, George Washington, when when they were going back and forth for four months in Philadelphia and not having a lot of luck, George Washington actually wrote, I almost need to repent from having any agency in this business. He was almost beside himself. He had fought eight years of this Revolutionary War to get us to where we were. We were operating under that loosely based articles of confederation that was failing our country. But once they were able to agree and write and adopt this constitution, George Washington said it was a scene of prosperity and tranquility. Experience has proven that these principles were sound. Now, the, the, the founders thinking today might sound kind of old fashioned and maybe even pre-Victorian in this high tech world that we live in. But these principles, their principles have the advantage of an impressive track record of imperial proof that they are true, they are externally true. That is their primary credential. They work, we saw them work. We saw what happened when we operated under them in the first hundred years. So our purpose in our study in this 5000 yearly class is to present the founders 28 great ideas in their original simplicity mostly in their own words we'll we'll share a lot of quotes from our founding fathers because they were the ones that were able to make this fantastic 5000 yearly possible awesome. okay I'll take it away
1: okay we're going to discuss now the founders monumental task of structuring a government with all power in the people. So the question we have to ask ourselves is where did they get these ideas? Where did they come up with these 28 principles and the formula that went into creating the declaration Declaration of Independence and the Constitution? So there's a picture of the founders. So there was a study done by Dr. Donald Luntz and a Dr. Charles Heineman in 1978, and what they did was they reviewed the books which, with the founders, relied upon to get the basic ideas that went into the formulation of the United States Constitution. So they reviewed an estimated 15,000 items, including books, pamphlets. Newspaper articles that were published between 1760 and 1805, and of the thousands of citations quoted to support their ideas, 34% of them came from one source, and that's the Bible. Most of these were from the book of Deuteronomy, which is known as the book of God's law, book of Deuteronomy. The founders' exceptional insight into the Bible was a direct result of their college training. So if you think back in history, schools like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia, Brown, and Rutgers, and so forth, were all started by churches. So the Bible was at the foundation of the curriculum, whether they were studying botany, business, law, anything. But the foundation was the Bible. Additionally, the founders also studied and read from the same books. They were students of history, even though their backgrounds varied. So what we do today as a people is we mistakenly measure government by political party. We've got the donkey on the left representing the Democratic Party, and we've got the elephant on the right representing the Republican Party. The founders would have said that is the wrong way to measure government. The definition of government is a system of ruling and controlling. Government is a system of ruling and controlling. So you don't measure government by political party, you measure government by political powers. The founders had a better way as they measured government by the amount of coercive power or systematic control over the people. And they said that the two extremes that you want to avoid is tyranny on the left and anarchy on the right. So today we look at it as liberals on the left, conservatives on the right, political parties shift like sand, but anarchy and tyranny are the two extremes that you want to avoid. And so the founders worked very hard in those four months, as Julian highlighted, to get into the center where it's called people's law, where all the power is in the hands of the people. You want just enough government to protect the the individual rights of the people, but not too much government to abuse them. So we should take our hats off to the founders for finding that balance center. And the way they did it was under two major principles. The first is separation of powers and the second checks and balances separation of power checks and balances as thomas jefferson said the way to have good and safe government is not to trust it all to one but to divide it among the many distributing to everyone exactly the functions he is competent to and then he goes on and ask this question what has destroyed liberty and the rights of man in every government which has ever existed under the sun It's the generalizing and concentrating of all cares and powers into one body. Are we seeing that today? We look to Washington, D.C. to solve our problems, as opposed to having power spread out and having local people where the problems originate come up with the solutions, as opposed to going to Washington, D.C., or even your state capital. And so you also have the principle of checks and balances, which is a peaceful means of checking the power between the three branches of government. Okay, so ruler's law. What what is ruler's law? Ruler's law is the notion that had it not been for the blessings of the Almighty, we would not have won. So we rule by the divine right of kings. And in his ruler's law, there's no inalienable rights. And an unalienable right is a right that the Lord gives us to help us keep his commandments. Those are the thou shalt. And then there are also unalienable wrongs, and those are the thou shalt not. And we can't we can't violate one commandment to keep another, marriage being the example. We have the right to marry. And we're commanded to do so and encouraged to do so by our Heavenly Father, but only under his law. So a behavior that violates God's commandment is not a right. Those are the thou shalt nots. In in ruler's law, freedom is never an answer or solution to anything. Freedom is never a solution to anything. Ruler's law, the king owns the land. He owns the people. Everything, all the inventions come from him. He's the man. Everybody refers to the ruler. And there you have all power in the ruler, people's law, all power in the people. So let's fast forward to The Ten Commandments. And I know we had a chance to watch. Well, Julian probably, she fell asleep after the first hour, but I watched all four hours of the Ten Commandments. It's a long one, but it's a good one. How long is it? It's about four and a half hours, five hours with commercials. (laughs) So let's go to, so for your homework assignment, please review Exodus chapter 18, verses 13 to 26. In Exodus, we read about the story of Moses and Jethro. And Moses is given some really sound advice from his father-in-law, Jethro, because Moses is spending the whole day listening to the problems of the people. He's wearing himself out, and he's wearing the people out. According to a census record, which is recorded in the first chapter of Numbers, Moses likely had charge of over 3 million Israelites. Ironically, that's the same number of people that lived in the 13 colonies at the formation of America during the Revolutionary War. And so Jethro said, boy, you're gonna wear yourself out. You need to handle the big stuff and let the people take care of the small things. So what, what Jethro advised him to do was to divide up those 3 million people into families, families of tens, families of hundreds, families of thousands, And then they would vote on who their leaders would be. And so Moses ended up with 78,600 assistants. And under people's law, the control and power of governing is distributed among the many, the Israelites. Leaders are elected and new laws are approved by the common consent of the people. Common consent of the people. And in Exodus chapter 18, verse 26, it states, the hard cases they bought unto Moses, but every small matter they judged themselves. Okay, do you want to talk about the Anglo-Saxons, Julene? Yeah,
0: okay. so um, thanks, honey. That was interesting. I like I like <laughs> <laughs> Moses and Jethro. So during the 1700s, one of the most fascinating and popular studies going on in England and America was unraveling and understanding the mystery of this Anglo-Saxon people. Historians and at the time have uh, written volumes about who these people were. It seems like these amazing groups of people called the Anglo-Saxons came from the Black Sea around the first century, and they spread over all of Northern Europe and they were so well organized and governed. And they not only conquered and uh, intermarried with the royal families of every Northern European country, but they also set out in their own open boats to chase the Irish out of Iceland and discover Greenland and even establish temporary settlements in what is now known as Canada. Now, many leading historians and authorities believe that the Anglo-Saxons were actually descendants of the 10 tribes of Israel that, that fled over time after some of the Assyrian conquests and so forth. And they believe that as those lost tribes fled up to the Northern lands, that would ultimately go on to become England and Iceland and Norway. Now, about four 450 A.D., we, we come to know um, two Anglo-Saxon chiefs known as Henga and Horsa, and they introduced the people to principles of people's law, and they kept this people's law intact for almost 600 years. And, uh, and it wasn't until about 1,000 A.D. that the Vikings and the Nor- Normans from Denmark came and conquered them then they lost uh, their freedom, England lost their freedom. But the most important thing at this time during the 1700s was that Jefferson and Jefferson and uh, Benjamin Franklin and John Adams and others, they were studying this Anglo-Saxon culture. And what they noticed is the government during this period was almost identical with that of ancient Israel. Now, Thomas Jefferson would actually go on to um, become proficient in five languages. And one of the languages was of his ancestors, the Anglo-Saxons. And he actually, actually learned their language so he could study their law in their original tongue. And he realized that they not only had the major elements of people's law, but they were organized and governed by the principles that were similar to that of Moses in the books of Exodus and and Deuteronomy. And his admiration for the Anglo-Saxon laws were expressed to his friend, uh, another founding father, Edmund Pendleton in, in August of 1776, where Jefferson says, has not every restitution of the ancient Saxon law had happy effects? Is it not now better now that we return at once into that happy system of our ancestors, the wisest and most perfect ever yet despised by the wit of man as it stood before the eighth century. Isn't that interesting that Thomas Jefferson would discern that mm-hmm. from the Anglo-Saxons. So the Anglo-Saxons organized themselves into units identical to those found in Exodus in the, in the Israelites. So they, they um, formed, they gave captains over, uh, over 10 families. It's called a tithing man. They had a head of a, a man that was over 50 families. It's called over a village, a bill. There was a head over a hundred families. He was called the hundredth man. There was a heads over a thousand families. So all of the laws, as well as the elections came uh to be by common consent by the people. So that meant that the major decisions of these people were either made by consensus or by a majority. So when they were choosing leaders, they would express the will of the majority. So what it did is it made possible the transfer of power to be had without violence. So that's such a contrast between rulers law that most people throughout history have lived under where all power is in the ruler and he reigns for life kind of thing versus people's law where the power is in the people kind of illustrated by those Mm -hmm. graphs that you showed us earlier so alan's actually going to discuss now the similarities between anglo-saxon law and ancient israel law
1: right okay so in anglo-saxon law and israelite law the emphasis is on strong local government as jelaine just highlighted land was looked upon as the private stewardship of the people, not the government. The rights of property were protected. The main thrust of government was upward, not downward, like we see today with mandates and regulations and so on and so forth. And the government was required to operate under the principle of law, not the whims of men. That's why we're a republic. A republic is based on the rule of law. God's law. So, a democracy is based on feelings, based on emotion. So, in a republic, murder will always be a law because the Lord has decreed it. So, in a democracy, which is based on feelings, if the majority of the people feel like murder is not so bad, then they can change the law. That's why you see folks on the other side who oppose, free, oppose freedom use that term of democracy quite often. And we're in a world now where everything is based on feelings, as opposed to the rule of law or God's law. That's why it's so important that we know these principles. Now, throughout history, the founders have struggled to establish that law in the balance center. And But before I get to that, so here's some more lessons learned from the people's people's law and the Israelites. So morality, you have to have morality, God's law, because it's hard to have principles of self-government when the people are rotten. That's why the clergy remains politically separate from the government, but they provide the moral stability for the people which permits the government to prosper. In other words, there is a separation of church and state but not a separation of religion and state. Okay, so the founders struggle for finding that balance center that we talked about between people's law, because if you know through history, you've got a king in place, the king becomes onerous on the people, and the people rise up, and they go, and they go after the king, and they create anarchy. And then when there's anarchy and chaos, the people looking around for somebody to show up and provide some stability, hence Napoleon, French Revolution, Napoleon says, well, I can end this tomorrow. So then they give Napoleon all the power, then Napoleon becomes king. And then over time, Napoleon becomes full of himself, and then the people rise up and they create anarchy. So you've got this pendulum that goes back and forth throughout history. So the founders had to work towards finding that pendulum so it could stop in the middle. Can somebody bring this chaos under order when it goes from tyranny to anarchy? And Franklin said, there is a natural inclination of mankind to kingly government. Relate that to today. He gives the illusion that the king will somehow establish equality among the people which doesn't happen. So let me go here and let's look at anarchy. Let's go back to that slide where, oh, here we are, the Articles of Confederation. So the founders, first ended up in a constitution that was too close to anarchy. They thought they would write up a constitution at the beginning of the Revolutionary War, whip it off over the weekend. John Dickinson from Pennsylvania was given the authority to do so. He comes back, guys, guys, I I got it. I got it. I got it. Here it is. And it was too centralized, too much central government. So the states objected to it. So then what they came up with, which almost helped us lose, which almost caused us to lose the Revolutionary War, was the document that had no executive, no judiciary, and no enforcement power. In fact, the the states had to agree unanimously, 100% agreement, before something was to happen. So that gives more credence and more honor and prestige to George Washington who won the war operating under these really sad circumstances. So let's talk about the Constitutional Convention. And as I highlight some of these things, think about what we have today. So conditions at the time were not ideal. The states were fighting each other. The continental dollar was inflated. The economy was depressed. There was rioting in the streets. England was in Canada waiting for us to falter so they could come back in and take over. And the Spanish were coming up through New Orleans doing the same thing, waiting for us to falter so they could come in and take over. And so the founders got together in May of 1787 and came up with this constitution. And the way they did it, they came about it with this idea of encouraging discussions and reaching general agreement or consensus where If somebody has an idea, you think about it. Maybe you had a predisposition to support a certain position. But then once you got more facts, you thought, "Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Case in point. James Wilson from Pennsylvania asked the question, how many presidents do you want? Edmund Edmund Randolph stands up and says, well, No, James Wilson. No, Edmund Randolph. Okay, let me get this right. Edmund Randolph (laughs) asked the question, how many presents do you want? James Wilson stands up from Pennsylvania and says, we want one. Edmund from Virginia gets up and say, wait a minute, that sounds like King George. We're not doing that. We're not going back to that. James Wilson goes, wait a minute, Edmund. Do you remember the story of the 30 Tyrants of Greece? Or do we wanna make the same mistake as the two councils of Rome? No, we need one president fixed in his responsibility with no buck passing and limited authority. And Edmund Randolph thinks about it. He goes, you know what? That makes a lot of sense, James. So they voted 60 different times, 60 ballots they took on how to elect the president. And they came up with the electoral college which we really only use once or twice. And we need to get back to that because that system works perfectly. So the premise behind the Constitutional Convention was general agreement and consensus. There were only three compromises in the document. Slavery, proportionate representation, and the federal regulation of commerce. That is it. That is it. Those were the three compromises. So I'm going to turn the time back to Jolene to talk about America's three-headed eagle.
0: You got kind of dramatic there with that little conversation. Oh, didn't you? You the
1: actor. Well, once I got it right, yeah.
0: <laughs> Sometimes that calls himself a black tour. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Okay, the American three-headed eagle. And stay tuned. We will talk about the Electoral College. We will talk about the separation of church and state. Thomas Jefferson said that. And when he said, he meant federal government, but the Supreme Court and courts have maligned and distorted that statement through the years as a means to pull out prayer and Bible reading and religious instruction from schools. So those are embedded in the 28 principles. So stay tuned. So some of these things that Alan and I might talk about in this little intro, you'll be like, oh, oh, can you go a little bit further? Just hang in there because we We will dig deeper on some of the things that we're covering in this general uh, introduction and part one this evening. Okay, so we're coming towards the end here where we talk about America's three-headed eagle. Now, some of the ancient thinkers, Polybius, Polybius, John Locke, Montesquieu, they all advocated for separation of governmental functions into three departments, okay, through the ages, legislative, executive, and judicial. But the founding fathers were the first to carefully the structure, carefully structure what might be described as a three-headed eagle there. And it's in your book, uh, the illustration. The central head was the lawmaking or legislative function with two eyes, meaning the House and the Senate. And they both must see eye to eye on legislation before it can become law. And then the second head is the administrative or executive department with a strong single president and a clearly defined framework of limited power. This is what they intended. And the third head was the judiciary that was supposed to act as a guardian for the constitution and interpret its principles as originally designed by the founders, okay? So they're to just guard the law. Mm -hmm. And um, the genius of this three-headed eagle was not only the separation of powers, but the the fact that the three heads operated through a single neck. By this means, the founders carefully integrated uh, uh, these three departments. So each would be coordinated with each other, but they could function independently. Of them. And it was really ingeniously uh, patterned of uh, after structured of a pattern of political power, which might be described as coordination without consolidation, this check and balance system. And the two wings on the eagle um, were, from the founder's view, this new form of government that were the symbol symbolizing uh, on one wing. The wing of compassion, where they would solve the problems. And this would be known as the house. All right. So they, they were elected every two years. So they had to solve problems quickly. You know, they had to help quickly so they could possibly get reelected. And then the wing, uh, the second wing, was known as the wing of responsibility, meaning they were more wanting to be conserving of the state or the nation's resources and the people's freedoms. And so they were kind of, you know, they were elected every six years. So the senators could kind of let cooler heads prevail, kind of like when you pour hot tea into a saucer, you let it steep a little bit and cool and cool, kind of cool some of that hot ideas or legislation from the house that wants to quickly solve problems. And so the question that the, the wing of conservation, the senators would ask before the 17th amendment was passed in 1913, which completely disrupted this balance of power with the Eagle. But the two questions the senators were supposed to ask the state legislatures who put them in office the uh, uh, in the House was, <laughs> does this infringe upon the rights of our state? And can we afford this? Because our state is going to have to come up with some of the money to pay for this program. And, um, and so you'll see how this disruption of the check and balance in power occurred when the 16th and 17th amendments were passed this is why you need to take the healing of america seminar uh, to understand uh, this disruption that came from these newer amendments in the 1900s so thomas jefferson would talk about we need we need both wings we need a conserving wing and we need a compassion problem solving wing as well and he he warned you know we need to be we need to be leery and careful of political extremists on in both parties. And I think, you know, our founding fathers would be very disappointed to see how the executive branch has gotten so big and so powerful and so bloated and how they're misusing their powers by use of executive orders or regulatory uh, laws or, or mandates. And we're, we've seen that, you know, over the last few years with COVID and, and even, you know, the extremists in the Congress, you know, amongst the leadership of the House and the Senate operating behind closed doors, really circumventing uh, uh, Congress, the executive branch, in, and uh, and the legislative branch, even abdicating some of their responsibility to the executive branch, because they don't want to, they don't have the political spine or will to, mm-hmm. to make some of these hard decisions. And so they've, thrown it over the fence to the president and um and so jefferson warns about some of these extremists and he even has a conversation warning uh george washington in the early days of washington's presidency he said jefferson called out washington and said i think your presidency is getting oppressive and monarchical," and washington stated oh no thomas if they're here, George, pretend George is speaking from the dust. He said, if there, there was not a man in the United States who would set his face more decidedly against a mon- narco, mo- a monarchy against it than myself, he said. And so, you know, they were very sensitive to the fact of a disruption of the balance of power between these three branches of government And the founders would go on to warn against this uh, drift towards the collective left, towards tyranny. The founders warned against a number of temptations which might lure subsequent generations to abandon their freedoms and their rights by subjecting themselves to a strong federal administration operating on the collective left, leaning towards tyranny, too many laws too much oversight too much regulation and um uh, it's like we're living this prophecy today aren't we the founders warned against the welfare state where the government endeavors to take care of everyone from cradle to grave i mean just think of all the stimulus checks and the covid checks and the child care checks that were um, put out uh, over the last few years If we can prevent the government from wasting the labors of the people under the pretense of taking care of them, they must be happy. They will be happy, Jefferson said. Jefferson also said it was immoral for one generation to pass on the results of its extravagance in the form of debt to the next generation. And that is one of our principles, principle 27, the burden of debt is destructive to human freedom as is subjugation by conquest. And so the founders warned also that the only way for a nation to prosper was to have equal protection of rights and not allow the government to get involved in trying to provide equal distribution. This is principle number seven, the proper role of government is to protect equal rights, not to provide equal things. So we will discuss this principle in depth and our founding father Samuel Adams who went on to you know be known as the father of the revolution he said this utopian scheme of leveling or redistribution of wealth and of community of goods and having a centralized ownership of means of production and distribution he said this, it's a, this idea is as visionary and impractical as those which vest all property in the crown. These ideas are arbitrary, arbitrary meaning random or erratic. They're despotic, despotic, they're tyrannical. And in our government, they are unconstitutional. So to prevent the American eagle from tipping towards, whoo, uh, towards anarchy on the right or tyranny on the left, They wanted to see the American system that they were established remain in the firm, fixed, balanced center of the political spectrum. And the founders campaign for a strong program of widespread education. So they they wanted it, they knew in order for us to maintain this this kind of balance of power, this unique form of government, that we were gonna have to be wise in the establishment of it, wise and constitutional principles. And they wanted this taught in the school systems. They wanted history and constitution knowledge, but they also said in the Northwest ordinance, which we will study in principles one, two, three, and four, they wanted religion and morality taught because the only way a system of free people, government of free people like this could be maintained is if people were virtuous and morally strong. And they were looking to the heavens and abiding by the heaven's law, natural law, godly law, to maintain people's law. If a nation expects to be ignorant and free in a state of civilization, it expects what it never was and never will be. And so they went on this crusade of um, improving the law for educating the common people. Let our countrymen know that the people alone can protect us against the evils of misgovernment. And I really think I have to commend you. This is why you're here tonight. You are seeking to study and to understand the principles that made our nation great so that you can learn them and reteach them and perpetuate them to your children within your four walls of the home, with, to, to the people that you love and to the people in your communities and to your children's school teachers. Our founders knew that they had made a great discovery and they wanted their posterity to be able to maintain it. James Madison, one of our founders said, it is incumbent on uh, their successors, on us, or the successors to improve and perpetuate what they have given us. And he said that in the Federalist Papers. Now the founders had a common denominator of basic beliefs. They were all reading, as Alan mentioned, they were all studying out of the same books. They were all reading the Bible. They were all studying these ancient thinkers of Cicero and Montesquieu and John Locke and some of those other men that we'll be studying over the, the next 11 weeks. Even though the founders all came from different backgrounds, and at times they you know, bitterly quarreled over implementing these shared beliefs that they had. And they disputed uh, about, you know, some of how they were going to go about implementing um, their their basic convictions that they all held. They came from different churches or no churches. Some were farmers, some were presidents of universities, some were wilderness pioneers, some were, you know, kind of a, the, the herstotic, is that a word? or
1: I <laughs> have aristocracy.
0: Aristocracy, there you go. At landed estate. Some had those loquacious uh, southern drawls and other had the staccato Yankee. They were different. Some were, you know, frontier poverty men, some had opulent wealth. But what they all shared were these fundamental beliefs because they were remarkably well read and they were mostly reading out of the same. isn't that interesting Um, there's nothing more remarkable about these American leaders than the breadth of their reading and the depth of their knowledge concerning the essential elements of nation building and look they they didn't get along they had sharp criticism of each other they were uh, you know had quite different varying personalities but they all admired each other as laborers in the common cause I mean, we know that John Adams and Jefferson had the fallout and didn't talk for years and, and would write letters almost on their deathbeds and they both died on July 4th. And we know that um, Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was a founding father, uh, was a vehement critic for George Washington, but they both supported, but he supported everything which Washington worked and fought for. And so we are ready. After this evening, to begin to delve into these 28 major principles on which the founders established this first free people in modern times. These are great ideas that have provided both intellectual, political, and an economic climate that allowed us to take this 5,000-year leap. Now, next week in class, class number two, we're going to study principles one and two. We will typically study two to three principles each week over the course of the next 11 weeks, I would really like to recommend that you go back and you reread this introduction. We weren't able to cover it all. We gave kind of a, a broad overview at the 30,000 viewpoint. So please go back and read these 33 pages. You know, the secret to really comprehending and retaining what you learn is to go back and review something within a 48 hour period. Our founding fathers clearly believed that God's hand was in the establishment of this land and that the constitution was struck off by the hand of God, the principles that they um, embedded in that constitution. I hope as we begin to study these great 28 ideas that it will revive within us our own faith in God's ability to still perform miracles for us in this day and age to be able to scale insurmountable mountains and to heal this land. God promises in uh, the Holy Bible in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen that if we will um, turn from our wicked ways and seek his face and humble ourselves and repent, he will forgive us and he will heal our land. And I always say, you can take God's promises to the bank. We just got to do our part. I really believe here in America right now, we are having a 1776 moment. Are we going to be amongst those that will stand up and speak back and push back and speak up and fight for our freedoms? As Al mentioned, only 3% of those during the Revolutionary War actually fought on the side of freedom and for America, that was about 90,000 people. Today, we have about 320 million people in America 3% of that would be about 9.6 million people. Do you think we have 9.6 million people that love America and are willing to get on that wall and say, okay, Lord, here am I, send me, what do I need to do? Someone recently told me, Jolene, the adversary never sleeps. So we got to wake up, (laughs) we've been slumbering a little bit too long. We've got to repent of our uninformed or apathetic or kind of sleepy ways and as we wake up and we begin to look to God for our freedoms, for our solutions, for our delivering, and not to Washington or to the president or to some sort of governmental program. And as we you know, go to God in prayer and we study his word and study his laws, his revealed divine laws in, in the scriptures, and then we take our children and our grandchildren to God and to the word, and we make family time a high priority I think this is why I felt that devotion was always so important. And we keep those kids close. And as we continue to study the constitution from the viewpoint of the founding fathers, to learn the stories and miracles of America. And might I just say Moms for America has a fabulous 12 uh, class series called the um, 12 introductory cottage meeting series. And it teaches mothers and dads. We love dads too, to come into our classes and to watch them online how to raise up this next generation of patriots, how to learn the stories, how to teach the stories to your children, how to lay the foundation of faith and teach the valor of virtue and the power of patriotism and the importance of teaching the constitution. How do you do that? The importance of teaching self-reliance and eating together and having uh, money management and budgeting and, and good little work programs These lessons teach that, and they're really wonderful. You can watch them all online uh, at our Moms for America website. So as we continue to learn and study and show up and start cottage meetings in our own home or participate in online cottage meetings, then inevitably we'll know what to do for the last point. We need to do something. You know, and, and as we pray about it, God will put into our hearts how we can take action. You know, I mean, should we should we start a cottage meeting? Should we start, you know, a dev- devotional in our home? Should we start sending uh, a little patriotic stories to our grandchildren? Should we get involved in some of the volunteer positions that Moms for America has in the way of state liaisons or mom mentors or field moms as you keep. Uh, joining us you will know what these all these things are but you will do something should i run for office should i support a good candidate should i host and meet a candidate night in my home should i show up for a school board meeting god will put into your heart what you need to do and because of your willingness to get on that wall and to show up and to say i now that i know a little bit more i need to do a little bit more It will justify the heavens to intervene and to begin to heal our homes, our marriages, our communities, our school settings, our state, our nation. You heal home and you ultimately will heal a nation. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for being with us this evening. I really feel that you have the refounding father and mother spirit within you as you come seeking and learning We so look forward uh, to being with you over the next four weeks. I just say, sit back and watch as you continue to learn how God will bless you, how he will bless your home, your community, and ultimately uh, this nation because of your efforts. And with that, we will bid you adieu and see you next week. Take care.